So Wednesday, you Wait. and I, since we're kind of talking about sex all the time. Constantly. People send us vibrators and they send us sex toys and they send us all kinds of goodies, which are amazing. What a job. Could be worse. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is you have your favorites. We all have our favorites. Mine is a vibrator called Girl's Best Friend from, and from Sweet Vibrations. Yep. And mine is the Tulips, which I've talked about before from Sweet Vibrations. What's not to like? The variety, the bright colors, they're pretty, they're fun and beautiful and waterproof and rechargeable. And they're all under $50. Yes. I mean, they're affordable and it's so much fun. So you guys... Check out Sweet Vibrations for a real good time. You can look them up on Instagram at Sweet Vibrations or check them out at sweetvibes.toys. And at checkout, use our promo code for 15% off. It's wild love. That's right. And wild you're going to save a pretty penny mm -hmm. with which you can buy another one. <laughs> exactly. Today we're talking to biological anthropologist, primatologist, and Darwinian feminist, Amy Parrish, the world's leading expert in bonobo studies and a professor at UCLA. I loved this episode because we really got into the difference between sexual monogamy and social monogamy, which I completely learned something new about, and how women run shit. Be sure to check the show notes to learn how to help out bonobo conservation International. I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. Whitney. Wednesday. Miller. Here you are. And so excited. I know I say this sometimes, but <laughs> yeah. I am. You do, actually. I do. You I do. get very excited about our guests, but today I'm particularly excited because mm. my friend, Dr. Amy Parrish, is here. We're sandwiching her. We're, she's, it's, it's an Amy Parrish sandwich. Mm. And Amy is. One of the world's leading experts. I'm going to give it to you, the world's leading expert Ooh, on you heard it here bonobos. <laughs> yes, and who are well, we'll let Amy tell us who and what bonobos are. But she was one of my favorite experts that I interviewed for my book on true, and I think that her studies of um, the behavior of non-human primates are going to blow people away today when we hear her thoughts about it. I'm super excited because don't me. I feel like most people think that chimpanzees are our closest relative, right? That's true. Chimpanzees were studied much more thoroughly and earlier than bonobos. And so we knew less about bonobos for a long time. And so we built most of our models of human evolution on what we know about chimpanzees. And um, so then it was uncomfortable when we had this other closest living relative. They're both 98.5% genetically identical to humans. And it turned out that their behavior was radically different. And so the people who'd already built a lot of models based on chimps didn't necessarily want to relinquish you know, their kind of corner on the market of man's closest living <laughs> mm -hmm. relative. And pretty much they meant man. They didn't really mean human. It was very male-centric. And um, my research revealed that um, in the bonobos, it's a matriarchy. It's a female-dominant species. And that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Ooh, OK. <laughs> Time to start digging in. <laughs> That among our closest living non-human primate relatives, matriarchy is the way things are versus chimp um, reality, which is that there's coercion of females, there's a lot of male violence, there's male dominance. People were pretty uncomfortable when you 
told the world that. And can you talk about some of the responses within your field of primatology when you told them, look, um, basically our closest relatives are a lesbian matriarchal hookup culture. <laughs> Tell people who don't know about bonobos what they are and then right. about your finding and yeah. response to it, if you would. Yeah. <laughs> so we're equally closely related to chimps and bonobos and we share some characteristics with each. So it's true chimpanzees have this kind of demonic reputation. They, they do have a lot of sexual coercion of females. Males commit infanticide on infants that they haven't sired. Um, they do a lot of hunting and meat eating, mostly of monkeys. Um, they commit warfare on other groups. And, you know, a lot of those traits, I have to say, humans are, are typical of humans mm. as well. Um, in bonobos, when I started studying them, very little was known. And what was known suggested that there were atypically friendly relationships between males and females. Not that they were monogamous or pair bonded or anything like that, but they seem to affiliate and associate with each other much more than a typical mammal. And so I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. And it would um, make a really nice comparison for work that my undergrad advisor had done on baboons. So Barbara Smuts. Barbara at- Smuts, <laughs> our professor at the University of Michigan. Amazing. Love her. Yes. Go on. Yeah. So she had written a book, Sex and Friendship in Baboons, about heterosexual pair bonds in baboons. And I thought, well, this will be really interesting to look and see how that pattern compares with bonobos. But as soon as I started watching them, I realized that something far more interesting was going on. Unrelated females were playing with each other, having sex with each other. They're not really lesbian. Um, In bonobos, all individuals are, um, I would say, bisexual. So all individuals have sex with both males and females, but nobody's exclusively hetero or homosexual. but they were having sex with each other. They were being nice to each other's infants. They were sharing food. They were um, dominating males in all kinds of ways, like attacking them and inflicting blood drawing injuries. The females were attacking the the males. males. And nobody could make sense of that, right? Because that's so contrary to our narrative of what's normal or natural Mm -hmm. in our species. And so each zoo had sort of a a folkloric story about what was wrong with their particular male, right? Because something had to be wrong. So they would say, oh, you know, when this male was young, a female keeper took him home to nurse him back to health after an illness, and you know, she must have ruined him and made him soft. And, made him know, a pansy, <laughs> pansy bonobo. <laughs> yeah, right, right, which was really funny. And But I knew from working, I've worked with most of the world's um, uh, zoo population of bonobos that I was seeing the same pattern wherever there were multiple females, that they were having a lot of sex with each other. They were then um, being very nice to each other, forming these coalitions, and then using them to dominate males and have the power in the group. And so when I first proposed this, um, within the primate community, some of the chimpanzee researchers weren't really eager to hear this news. And so... Um, <laughs> that flipped yeah. everything on its head. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so one researcher said... <laughs> one researcher said, well, it's not... Um, it, it's not female dominance, it's strategic male deference, which is an absolutely insane. In other words, he was saying the males just let the females think they're dominant. Right. And the, for strategic okay. reasons, they're <laughs> stepping <Okay>. back. <laughs> Nobody's ever suggested that when it's male dominance, mm-hmm. that females could have the power, but for strategic reasons, they're stepping back and making it look like right. you know, the males are in charge. And so what do you think, okay, if it is a strategic strategy, what? why would males let themselves be dominated? What do you think was the... 
Uh-huh. Was it for sex? Of course. That's of what course. I was saying. That's the only place that my mind went. <laughs> right. I, yeah. So, yeah, that was the explanation that um, these researchers offered was, well, of course, um, what's really happening is that males have the strategy of letting it look like the females are in charge so that they can get more sex out oh, of them. Oh, Lord. Right? <laughs> Even though... <laughs> Impose human Maybe those little monkeys much. just like to be dominated. <laughs> Maybe they have no choice. Well, right. And, and you know, we always in science look for the most parsimonious explanation. Yes. What is the simplest explanation for this phenomenon? And it was clear that these males were incurring really heavy costs. Females were biting off toes and fingers sometimes. Wow. Um, a lot of injuries had to be treated by the vets. In one case, they bit a male's penis in half. Um, and the, fortunately, the vet in that case was a specialist in microsurgery. So he was able to um, sew the penis back on, but he had to account for how frequently they get erections. And so he had to use all these different size stitches. And fortunately, that male went on to reproduce after that. So wow. he was really lucky. That's like but, a wow. miracle yeah. surgery. Uh-huh. Well, maybe this is, I mean, this is kind of on topic, but let's just say a male human's penis got cut off or I don't even know if you could it bite happens. it off. Like what happened to, to Lorraine Bobbitt and her husband? Oh, John Wayne Bobbitt. Yeah. Well, what yeah, she, she cut his penis off. She cut his she chopped pe- it right she, off. She cut his penis off after years and years of abuse and coercion and um, threw it, you know, um, she threw she it threw out it. the car window. She was like in a fugue state. And um, his penis was successfully reattached. reattached. But what happened was um, in the trials afterwards she was tried for assault and he was tried um for i believe uh, domestic violence and maybe for rape um what happened was because the story of the cutoff penis was so big nobody focused on the fact that right. she had been abused for years and years unlike a female bonobo but did they have to like turn around the highway and go back and get- yes they had to find it <laughs> there was a search posse yeah so it happens a lot in Thailand too. Um, when I lived in, I lived in Thailand for two and a half years studying white-handed gibbons, and um, that was a really uh, frequent cultural narrative. Was males had the fear that women would cut off their penises, and apparently it does happen there. You know, women have to save face all of the time. They have mm-hmm. to be quite um, publicly facing. Um, uh, their public persona has to be very submissive and that kind of thing. But there's a point where they've had enough, you know. And so at that time, this was in the 90s, the world's experts on penis reattachment surgery were in Thailand. Interesting. Um, yeah. But now we have more penis reattaching experts. You know, I'm not sure. I haven't followed up on that. That would be an interesting <laughs> thing. To- <laughs> well, speaking of near lethal injuries or aggressive injuries, one of the things you did is you looked at the veterinary records. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So I was hearing all these stories from different zoos about what was wrong with their particular male and you know why he was- You know what one of the zookeepers said to me, and you know I love the zookeeper, but he said to me about their bonobos that he thought that the females were being given hormones for birth control and that it was making them unusually aggressive. No. Nobody ever want, none of the zookeepers Amy found out ever really want to say, um, yeah, the females are dominant. 
They mm-hmm. just kind of can't. So I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so from working at multiple zoos, I knew that many zoos had this pattern of males getting injured. And so I decided to look at the veterinary records because the vets treat any blood drawing injury. And what I saw was an overwhelming pattern. 95% of the injuries that vets were treating were adult females inflicting blood drawing injuries on males. And so um, I started looking more closely at that and and making the argument that this was part of the natural repertoire of bonobos. And sometimes people ask me, well, is it, um, is it a phenomenon that we only see in zoos? But it's not. In the wild, what we see is males have more space to escape, and you see them being more peripheral on the group. Mm. on the edges of the group, Um, but they are missing more fingers and toes than females are. Um, We used to attribute that to snares. So poachers in the forest set these wire snares to catch um, a lot of different animals that they want to hunt. And sometimes great apes get stuck in them and they lose, you know. A digit. Yeah, or a hand or foot. It's really sad. Um, But so we started to, I started to think, well, maybe some of those injuries that we've attributed to snares were really caused by females. Just the females. Mm. So, I mean, you see it all the time. One way that we can measure dominance is um, something called displacement. So if I walk over to you, and let's say you've just built a really nice nest. So say it, I built a really nice nest with a lot of leaves. Yeah, great. It's beautiful. Did a, and I, I did a great job. <laughs> see it now when it's been a lot of time. It. You know, <laughs> you're really looking it. forward. I slayed my nest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you're really looking forward to being in your nest and you're super excited. And you immediately get up and walk away and I take your nest and I lay in it and I enjoy your nest and you never even get to come back and enjoy it. Ooh. That's called a displacement. That's a really good measure of dominance. So okay. you can watch those over time and arrange them and and figure out a dominance order from that. So you did that. You studied who's displacing whom. Exactly. And it was the females displacing the males? Always, yeah. And, you know, in chimps, um, males rarely share meat with females. Right. Um, They mostly share with other males, Mm -hmm. occasionally with a female who's ovulating. Um, In bonobos, the females control the meat. They also do their own hunting. You're good. Okay. In um, we're gonna displace them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in bonobos, females control the distribution of meat. There are descriptions from um, Democratic Republic of Congo, where which is the only place bonobos right. live, of females consuming meat and males having temper tantrums under the the branches where the females are eating meat. Because they're not getting they any. Get any. They don't get any. Because so, they're low men on the totem pole. Exactly. So now, how are they so different, chimps and bonobos? Well, I think the ecology in the two populations is really different. So where chimps live, there are really small fruit trees that are spread um, pretty far apart. And so it doesn't make sense for females to spend a lot of time hanging out with each other because then you have to go further to get enough food. So each female carves out her own little kind of core territory within the larger community boundaries um, of the territory. And so they don't it's not really efficient for them to even associate with each other. In bonobos, the fruit trees are larger and can support big parties. And also the bonobos are willing to um, eat more kind of um, what's called terrestrial herbaceous vegetation, basically vines and plants and things on the ground that are more evenly distributed and easier um, to come by. Yeah. Less, you know, less to compete over. Less competition. 
Abundance. Yeah. Abundance. So they have the opportunity to hang out together. And from that, they started to kind of overhaul the, you know, the, the social system. And one of the other interesting things you figured out about bonobos, and then you figured out that these things went together, was that if a female bonobo is solicited by a male and a female at the same time, she'll choose the female. Can you talk she about that a little does. bit, about yeah. female bonobo sexuality? So you can tell usually when bonobos are about to have sex, one comes up to the other and they do this sort of arm around gesture where they put their arm around the other individual and then that individual kind of flips onto their back often and then they have sex face to face, which we used to think was just purely a, a human activity, but it turns out it's not. And um Oh, shoot, I forgot your question. I'm About <laughs> when a female bonobo... So bonobo um, life is so nice that sometimes a bonobo, a female, will be solicited by a male oh, and a female right. at yeah. the same time. Right. So let's say two individuals are coming and soliciting a female for sex, either doing the arm around gesture. You can do this thing where you extend your arm and you kind of wiggle the end of your fingers and every bonobo knows what that means. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? and so um, the great thing in bonobos is males don't sexually coerce females. So if a female does doesn't want to have sex with the male, she can avoid that by just not looking at him in the eye. And eye contact is really an important part of, um, uh, of facilitating a sexual interaction. So the female, sometimes she'll pick the male, but quite often if she's being simultaneously solicited, she'll pick the female. And um, both chimps and bonobos have these really large genital swellings. So the genital area swells up, particularly as they get close to ovulation. And often in zoos, people are really puzzled by that. And they say, you know, what's what's wrong with those monkeys? And of course, they're not monkeys, they're apes. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, male chimps and bonobos think those are beautiful. Those and, big genitoanal yeah. swellings. Right. And they're, they're not just in chimps and bonobos. They're in about 25 different species of primate. And they evolved three separate times apparently to solve a similar problem, which is how do you efficiently mate with lots and lots of males? And chimpanzee females need to do that to make sure that the males don't target their infants for infanticide. Males are less likely to kill a baby if it could be theirs. In bonobos, females have these big swellings almost their entire cycle, and they're more frontally oriented than in chimps. And the clitoris um, protrudes out of the swelling. It can it's made out of the same tissue as a penis, it's and it all can become erectile erect. tissue. Yeah, so they can have sex with each other, uh, females, and the the action of that that um, that sexual encounter is kind of more back and forth Rubbing. than in and out. So that would probably provide more clitoral stimulation than um, sex with a male, right? Right. And so I, that's my hypothesis for Your why. Your hypothesis is that the females are having sex with each other because it feels really good. Right. Because of those forward-facing, richly enervated clits. Yeah. And that rubbing feels better than the intercourse. You also discovered an amazing thing about our very close non-human primate female relatives, which is one of the things that they can actually use the clitoris for and do once in a while. Intromission. That's true. Because the clitorises can become erect to about two and a half inches, they can, they can intermit them in the swellings of the other females. I'm not sure how appealing that is to another, you know, that's still two and a half inches. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it seems like more of the external rubbing. The external um, rubbing yeah. is the thing, but once in a while yeah, they use their own clitoris as a dildo. Yeah. Or as, wow. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm being creative. That's very creative, mm -hmm. right? Okay. So you 
discovered these things about um, female bonobo sexuality and power, how are they linked? That female dominance among bonobos and female sexuality, how do they go hand in hand? So it's really rare in mammals for unrelated females to get along. So either they tolerate each other or they avoid each other or they're very aggressive to each other, but it's super rare for, in mammals, unrelated females to have any kind of sustained relationships that might be something that we would characterize as a friendship. So I was struck right away that females were being so nice to each other and to each other's infants and not being competitive. Hanging out. Yeah, yeah, sharing food, playing with other, you know, mother's babies. You hear about strong female relationships, say, in mice or in lions or in giraffes, where even females will nurse each other's babies, but that's Mm -hmm. always in the context of kinship. So those are always, you know, nieces and nephews and cousins and stuff like that that you're helping out. And it just doesn't happen in mammals except, you know... to some extent in humans and to a very large extent in bonobos. So it was fascinating for me to notice that pattern and then try to figure out how they do it and why they do it. And part of how they do it is by having sex with each other. So it helps to reduce tension that might exist over things like um, negotiating um, feeding time. So if you have um, keepers providing a lot of food, typically in other species, there would be a lot of aggression over that food and you would have to throw the food to different individuals to make sure the lower ranking ones get something to eat. But in bonobos, they have sex with each other and then they peacefully share the food. There's still you know, some like minor squabbling. And of course, if you have a chance to have fruit in both hands and both feet and kind of hobble off with it, you, <laughs> you will. But <laughs> That's what I like to do. <laughs> stuff your cheeks full and just kind of walk off with as much as you can. But There's no fighting really over food, and um, there's a lot of pre-negotiation that happens through that sexual encounter and allows them to then share the food. So power and sex are linked in the sense that sex can diffuse tension and then help facilitate those bonds, and then those bonds in turn allow the females to act out of a cooperative interest and have the power in the group. So the sex helps them build coalitions. This is fascinating. And be powerful. Yeah. yeah. On exactly the opposite of chimp females. Mm -hmm. But we're always telling the chimp story about humans until Amy comes along. And you were, when you started studying bonobos, or when you first brought some video of bonobos having sex with each other and started to tell the world that you thought bonobos were a female dominant species, you were what? How old were you? I guess 26, maybe, something like that. Wow, um, busting 20, into the scene. Busting into 24? the patriarchy. Oh, maybe 24. Yeah. I don't know, something you, like that. So, wow. <laughs> I mean, for those who are not watching the video, just imagine this petite, blonde, blue-eyed, 24, 25, 26-year-old woman coming in and blowing up primatology <laughs> yeah. and saying... Everything you assume about, yeah, about our closest relatives is untrue. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't just this one chimpanzee researcher who, with his strategic male deference idea that um, was resistant. Um, 
other researchers were really avoiding characterizing it as female dominance. So they would say, it's a species that's almost co-dominant. Or, <laughs> but this is science. You, know, you test things and you, you apply a, a statistical right. test to it and you figure out, is that the, the explanation that's most reasonable or not? So we're going to great lengths to try to avoid calling it a matriarchy or female dominance. So um, at one of the... Um, the zoos where I worked, they would give people tours. And when they would get to the bonobos, they would say, this is an egalitarian species governed by the females. Well, that's hmm. not egalitarian. If it's governed, <laughs> that's not egalitarianism. <laughs> if it's governed by the females, right? That's right. that's a matriarchy. Um, so there were those kinds of reactions, you know, both from the public and from other scientists. I, I took my first... Um, videos of sexual behavior home and showed them to my godparents, you know, over Thanksgiving or Christmas or something. And, and they're not super religious. It's more like cultural, you know, cultural religious affiliation. But nonetheless, we sat on the couch and they looked kind of stunned and they said, somebody gave you a grant to do this? <laughs> um, yes. And then we went to the Understanding Chimpanzees Conference, which was held in Chicago and was a fantastic event. It was about 300 chimpanzee and bonobo researchers. This was in 1992 uh, or maybe 91. When people knew hardly anything about that's bonobos. That's right. That's right. And Jane Goodall opened, you know, the session and um, she just walked up to the mic and began pantooting, you know, which is a chimpanzee greeting. And Will she's you do great one for at, I can try, but I can't do it the way she can. So it's sort of like, ooh, 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 ooh. And then it ends in this giant scream that I can't do, but... <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's Love great. it, Wednesday. Oh my god! Wow, awesome. you don't want to hear my howler monkey. Oh my god, I do. That was so awesome. <laughs> Hit us with it with the howler monkey. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> that is so cool. I can do part of a Gibbon duet. Yes. And then the male jumps in, and he's like, whoop, 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 whoop. And then this is really beautiful. And then they, wow. they go on together like that. Gorgeous. Okay, so Jane Goodall opens it up. She she does her pant hoot, and the whole audience pant hoots back, which was amazing. Mm. To have 300 people all pant hooting. And it was like connecting over those 6 million years of evolution um, with chimpanzees and bonobos, and just it made your hair stand on it. So then um, when I, so somebody gave a talk about bonobos who had done some field research. And at that time, not much field research had been done because it was a pretty dangerous place to work in, in right. Zaire, you know, and what's now Democratic Republic of Congo. <laughs> Sorry. No, no problem. Um, and so this this woman showed this, you know, this slide and it was all these green leafy trees. And, you know, she was using a laser pointer to say, you know, do you see that pink dot right there? That's a, you know, a female genital swelling. And everyone was kind of squinting and looking, okay, you know. And then I gave my talk right after hers, and I had this giant slide of just a female genital swelling with all of this ejaculate <laughs> on it. <laughs> so, ejaculate from many different males. Yeah, yeah. So I was talking about the ejaculate and the swelling and everything. And um, my um, one of my... Um, one of the co-chairs of my PhD committee, Franz Duval, yeah. uh, was standing in the back of the room and there was another male primatologist standing by him who said, how can such a delicate woman talk about such things? Oh. <laughs> it was really funny. So you were like personally getting some pushback and like There was some talk. gendered, definitely yeah. gendered aspects to the, yeah. You know, there was one chimpanzee researcher who said the only reason that I... Um, 
you know, saw bonobos as female dominance was because of my own personal feminist politics. And of course, we all have our lenses. But the great thing about science is it's self-correcting through time. Mm -hmm. And I had never accused that scientist of only looking at hunting behavior because he had some kind of patriarchal male man the hunter, you know, aspect. Right. So I didn't think that was very fair. You know, there was no justification to think that they weren't female dominant. Right. And as if your point of view weren't rounding out the science. I mean, right. that's what happens. Yeah. yeah, That's what Sarah Hurdy says, right? She says, it's kind of a strange way to frame it to say, oh, this feminist perspective is distorting the science. It's just rounding it out. There's, that's right. Yeah, because... And I was so lucky. Sarah Hurdy was the other co-chair of my PhD committee. So I had two amazing people as mentors. And you know, Sarah only ever took three students. I was the second of the three students that she took. And she was just incredible um, yeah. to and get we, to learn. If people want to learn about like the evolutionary origins of human-female sexuality and motherhood and female bonding... Sarah Hurdy, who is was Amy's um, doctoral dissertation advisor, H-R-D-Y. She wrote these incredible books, one called Mother Nature, one called Mothers and Others, one called The Woman That Never Evolved, about all those topics. And you call yourselves Darwinian feminists. That's right. Can you tell us about that and how you're... Yeah. How your bonobo work led to your Darwinian feminism? So the Darwinian feminist movement started in the early 90s, and it was um, Barb Smuts from University of Michigan and Patty Gowati, who's an amazing evolutionary biologist um, who, um, well, in one uh, in one Nova video, she's described as blowing the lid off of avian monogamy. <laughs> 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 with her research on bluebirds and, right. and the female preference for um, novel males and things like that. Uh, and the oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. And we know now that, you know, a lot of nestlings are not sired by the male that's feeding them. So there's a difference between social monogamy and sexual monogamy. Right. And, and Patty Gowati was a huge part of that delineation. Oh, delineation. she was part of our now talking about social monogamy versus actual monogamy. That was Patty Goatti. Yeah, Patty. And so it was Barb and Patty and Sarah Hurdy. And there were just a number of female scientists who were also feminists and saw that there was a lot of overlap in the questions that we were asking. Who has power? How do you get it? What is it good for? What's it like not to have power? What are the costs of that? And um, there wasn't a lot of dialogue going on between disciplines. And that's typical in academia anyway. But I think particularly between um, what were then women's studies departments um, and and biology, there was kind of a, an antagonism. The women's studies people felt that biology is often used to justify patriarchy and male dominance, which it has been in the past for sure. If you say, oh, chimpanzees are our closest living relative and they have this really strong patriarchy, our last common ancestor with them was six million years ago. Therefore, patriarchy must be very deeply embedded in our DNA and kind of inescapable. So that was a legitimate criticism, but not all scientists are, you know, um, interpreting it in that mm-hmm. way. We're good scientists are looking at variation and why do you see one outcome in in a particular set of environmental circumstances versus a different outcome when the environment changes? Um, and their other criticism was that science essentializes male and female differences. And that's largely actually um, a legitimate um, 
criticism of evolutionary psychology, mm-hmm. where they say all males want young, fertile females and all females want older, resource-laden males. And so they give the rest of science a bad name, yeah. I think, but by by focusing on that kind of essentialism. Mm-hmm. And so those were legitimate criticisms, but that ignored a whole lot of other science out there that's not doing that, that's really good. And so it was a good opportunity for people who are doing good evolutionary biology science, who are also feminists, to bring all that together. And so Sarah and Barb and Patty convened um, a meeting at Sarah's house of about 14 or 15 uh, women. And I was fortunate enough to be included. They were all the alpha females of every kind of sub-discipline within <laughs> evolutionary biology. And I was Sarah's um, grad student at the time. Um, I was pregnant with my son. And I'd been nervous about telling Sarah because I didn't want her to think, you know, that I was going to slow down or something right, like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, she she was she was fine with it. And all of these other women, all of these other alpha females, were really reassuring and saying, actually, the best time to have a baby is during grad school because you won't have time again until after you have tenure and a lot further into your career. They were encouraging and you. It was really nice. They were yeah. like a bonobo sisterhood. That's yeah, right. you're right. That's Absolutely. right. Yeah, and we all gathered on. So they wanted to see my bonobo videos and. And, uh, you know, it was VHS back then. Mm -hmm. So we all gathered in one of the bedrooms that had a VHS player. We all sat on the bed and watched these, you know, bonobo female sexual behavior videos together, which is a great bonding moment. Yeah. (laughs) So that was the birth of Darwinian feminism. Right. And then Patty Gowati went on to have a conference about it in Georgia um, and to publish a volume out of that. forget the exact title, but Patricia Dare Gowadi is the editor mm-hmm. of this volume, and it's something about intersections and Darwinian feminism. That, yeah. It's a beautiful book, really um, a great read. And so they were pioneers in this field. And, right. Um, so we've actually had some real important updates to sexual selection theory since the early 90s with these amazing yeah. women. And well, it's all ignored. Yeah. it's ig- A lot of it is ignored, although I feel like these ideas are getting more mass cultural traction now a little bit. But for what you guys really basically did, if I understand correctly, is you wanted, one of the things that you all did was you looked at the role that female sexual and maternal behavior plays and that it plays a, has played a huge role in evolution. Female strategizing, female maternal behavior, female sexual behavior is driving so much of evolution, but everybody was looking at male behavior. That's true, and really discounting females. So the idea was, who knows why? Sure, there's female choice, but who knows why females like yellow or spots or stripes <laughs> or a particular courtship dance, that it's all just somehow um, the aesthetic whim of the female. You know, So it was really discounted. Right. But there have been plenty of scientists. Marion Petrie, her work on peacocks was amazing. She took male peacocks um, who had these really impressive trains and she would cut eye spots out of them. And then, so they still had the same length, but eye spots were missing and the females didn't want to mate with those males. Hmm. Okay, is that aesthetic preference? Well, she designed an experiment where she had all of these um, uh, male peacocks in cages and females could walk up and down look at them and whichever one they spent the most time in front of she assumed was their their preferred mate and so she would let them mate 
And when, uh, so she paired some females with their preferred mate and other females with non-preferred mates and found that the viability of the offspring was much higher when they got to pick their preferred mates. So wow. they were, they were picking things that matter to how, what the clutch size is, how many survive through clutch size, uh, the that? number of eggs. How many and eggs? The, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you know, how big they are when they fledge, how many survive to adulthood, how many go on to reproduce, all of those kinds of questions are measures of your biological success. Mm-hmm. And it turned out female choice matters. It's not, um, it's not aesthetic, and it's not just a whim, and it's not unimportant. Um, but beyond that, there have been other really important updates to sexual selection theory, like um, you know Darwin really focused on okay, males compete over access to females, and that explains horns and canines and body armor and things like that, and. Uh, females choose males based on things like pretty songs and courtship dances, but he never discussed female-female competition, and anybody who's been to high school knows that females Mm -hmm. compete, right? And we call that intersexual competition. Right, and that was, you know, something that, um, that is really important to acknowledge. Or that males are choosy. Not every male takes every copulation. Mm -hmm. So in chimpanzees, males prefer choose uh, proven mothers. So they actually don't like the young. It's it's a really different pattern than in humans, right? They don't like these young and experienced females. They like females who already show that they can successfully rear an infant. So females spend time trying to convince males to mate with them. Or in langur monkeys, the temple monkeys that you see in India, um, my former partner, Volker Summer, um, showed that um, females will actually try to convince males to mate with them on days when they're not ovulating. And the chance Tricky, tricky. Well, this is important because these females (laughs) live in a harem and they're competing against the other females in that harem. And so they're intentionally trying to drain the male of sperm so that other females can't right. get pregnant. Oh, it's, sperm, it's competitive sperm depletion, That's right? Amazing. Because it's costly to produce sperm. So if you have it, your female competitor doesn't have it. That's right. You win. And, and then do the females realize what's going on? Like, can you... Well, the males realize, and so they're very choosy. The females okay. come up and they present their hindquarters and they shake their head and they shiver their bodies, and that's a sign that means mate with me in Hanuman Langers. And the males kind of look at them and they, you know, they have olfactory cues. I'm not just, sure. Exactly. So females get turned down. And that was something that was never part of our narrative, right? Sex is imperative for males. There's the copulatory imperative. And, and there goes the know. whole idea that people have that men are just naturally more sexy than women mm-hmm. and it's part of our evolutionary heritage if you look at the behavior of non-human primate females like you and your peers did that the, all these assumptions about human sexuality get challenged and they start to go poof 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 like That's they're unsupported so and then you look at humans why are human females spending so much time invested in their appearance and embellishing their appearance if males will take any copulation that comes along, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Ooh. why are we doing all of the stuff to ourselves, right? So there's a lot of reasons to think that these are important additional components to Darwin's original too. But the one that's m- most fascinating for me, and um, really thanks to Sarah and Patty, um, I, I became really interested in this, is he never looked at how males and females compete, that they might have differing interests and differing mm-hmm. priorities. But if you think about the cost for females of bearing an offspring, particularly in a mammal where there's internal gestation, there's lactation, 
even the size of the egg versus the sperm, females are investing more in each stage of reproduction than mm -hmm. males are, or investing differently. Males are investing in competition with other males and sperm production and things like that, defending territories. Females are in investing in the quality of a very limited number of eggs and then supporting that fetus through gestation. And then it takes more calories to lactate than it does to gestate. So it's a really different path. You know, for a, an orangutan female, if um, she mates with a male, that takes about 15 minutes. And afterwards, they go their separate ways. The male never invests in her in any way or in the offspring. Um, for the female, if she gets pregnant, it's an eight-month gestation followed by seven years of nursing. Whoa. Seven years. As somebody who nursed each baby for nine months, I'm just going to say... That's impressive. <laughs> right? I am suddenly, I have new respect for female orangutans just in this they moment. They <laughs> are the ultimate mamas. And then they protect that offspring for another three years after that. So it's about a 10-year investment per offspring yeah. for an orangutan female. Very costly. Versus the 15 minutes for the male, which, you know, downplays a little bit the male's investment. Who knows mm -hmm. what he had to do to get access to that female. But still, it's a radically different level of investment. So knowing this research, this is what makes me curious. Did it change your personal relationships in your life? Yeah. So I was oh, I raised by a very feminist mother. So in first grade, we had to um, <laughs> we had to write a little essay on you know what we wanted to be when we grow up. And so I said to my mom, oh, I think I'm going to write about that I want to be a nurse. And she said, absolutely not. If you want to be something in the medical field, you can be an anesthesiologist. Um, <laughs> they make more money, and there aren't enough women in that field, and so you should do that. So I went back to school, and you know, I reported to my teacher, well, I, I want to be an anesthesiologist. And she didn't know how to spell it, <laughs> which was a great lesson for me. She sent me to the library, and I learned how to look it up. And even today, if I had to write it down again, I'd have to go back and <laughs> look at how to, how to spell it again. Sure. But um, so, you know, I was definitely raised, you know, I remember at one point in high school, um, you know, uh, working at the polls with my mom and um, uh, she said, oh, you know, Amy, you could be a senator someday if you want, if you want to. And I said, only a senator? I was, I was deeply indignant at, you know, 14 that she would think that <laughs> senator was the highest. Exactly. Could use a good exactly. one right about now. Yeah. <laughs> but even when I was a baby, you know, her, um, she took me for one of these, you know, well baby checkups and the pediatrician said, oh oh, you know, maybe your daughter could grow up to be Miss America. And uh, my mother said, oh, God, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so I grew up in that kind of household, right, um, which was really interesting. Um, so already I had been kind of steeped in the idea that it's really important not to be in a, in a relationship where you're dependent on men, particularly financially dependent. Um, and, you know, I, I, and then being mentored by Sarah and Patty and Barb and all of these wonderful people looking at that dynamic of the competition between males and females, I was definitely aware pretty early on that, um, you know, what men and women want is different and mm -hmm. there are evolutionary explanations for that. And so this, this idea that suddenly if you're going to say marry someone, you know, I've been at wedding ceremonies where not only do you take, you know, the two individual candles and you light the the one candle that's going to represent your your the solidarity going forward. Sometimes they extinguish the individual candles, right? This idea that so that you're not even an individual person anymore mm -hmm. is so unrealistic. Um, you know, this idea that you're going to be in this monogamous relationship forever is is totally something that you can make work. 
but it's not really the default in our evolutionary biology. So it's fine to aspire to it. And I expect that of my partner and he expects that of me and that's fine. But don't think it's going to come easy, right? Mm -hmm, right. You have to mm -hmm. like, you're going to have to be very mindful to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And the default is much more having multiple partners and all kinds of extra pair copulations for both sexes. And, you know, uh, probably in a female's lifetime, multiple paternity was, was more typical than monogamy. So um, I would say, well, you know, and an, another aspect was um, when the data on how male, um, the male genes in the fetus can manipulate the female's physiology during pregnancy. So things like preeclampsia, this dangerously high blood pressure, is caused by the male genes in the fetus, um, also um, uh, gestational diabetes. That male doesn't know if the next baby you're going to have is going to be sired by him. So he wants you to pour as many resources as you possibly can into this baby, mm -hmm. right? But for you, you're going to have lots of babies regardless of who sires them. And you want to invest in this baby enough that it makes it, but not so much that it compromises future babies. So there's this kind of genetic mm -hmm. warfare going on between the male and the female genes in the fetus and how they're expressed. And it has this really negative impact on your physiology. Mm -hmm. And so knowing that really changed my feelings about, you know, pregnancy. And, we think um, motherhood's all warm fuzzies, oh but gosh, like but there's a war, war going on right. in there. Is that called maternal fetal microchimerism? Is that what we're talking um, about? I'm not sure that that's the right term, but it's the genetic imprinting. Right. Right. Okay. Which can come from either. The chimerism, I think, is a little bit different, okay. which is also fascinating. So, but, but there's this fascinating war going on between right. mother and fetus, right. even during gestation. Which, well, and after you've had a baby, after you've had a pregnancy, um, that that the male who sired your baby's uh, genetic material material can be picked up in your body like it's there for life right, right? it's so yeah it just changes and you know i mean i i really uh, love my partner and and we have a great relationship and i've had you know great partners before him and i'm really grateful with um the father of my son that we have a really cooperative relationship and are still really good friends and we still take our son on vacations together and yeah. you know that makes it really nice there's no reason to be hostile about it but um yeah i think it probably changed my idea of you know my expectations of whether things are going to endure um and and what the dynamics are going to be within the relationship and then how clear you have to be about what kinds of expectations you have around um, sexual interaction. Mm -hmm. Something I did want to go back to because I'm not super in the know about this is what you were saying about socially monogamous versus, versus sexually sexual monogamous. monogamous. Will you explain right. that to right. our listeners? Okay, so um, I spent two and a half years in Thailand um, with my son's father studying white-handed gibbons. And what was known about gibbons at the time, they're another ape, they're an Asian ape, they're the ones with the really long arms and, and Love the, the cool duets, they're really cool. Um, what was known about gibbons at the time was that um, the typical social pattern is one male living with one female, and then there's some associated juveniles and infants. And for the longest time, people would hold up gibbons as this example. For of, humans. That, of, you for know. humans, that okay. they're lifelong monogamy. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So sorry to interrupt. No, no, Go no. On. That's true. And even though they're not um, particularly closely related to us, I mean, you know, it kind of goes chimps and bonobos are our closest relatives and gorillas and orangs then would come gibbons, right? So it's pretty far back. But um, they're like anything, lifelong right. monopoly. <laughs> there, there it <laughs> Just is. Just find an example. <laughs> yeah. But nobody had, um, had studied gibbons, um, multiple groups of gibbons 
at once. They'd kind of either done a survey where you walk through the forest and you say, okay, there's a group and there's a group and there's a group and you write down all the compositions or you study one group for a couple of years. Um, but if you only study one group, it's going to change their interactions with other groups because this group has these weird humans following it around. Sure. Right? So, um, so this was mo mostly the work of my partner and his students. They um, started getting multiple groups of Gibbons used to having humans follow them. And what they started to see was that um, after these morning duets that males and females did in the morning, the male would disappear. And everybody had interpreted that as, oh, he's off defending the boundaries of the territory for this, for this pair-bonded couple that, the, that he's part of. But while he was gone, the neighbor from next door, the neighboring male would come in and sit right by the female <laughs> and right by the infant. And you know, the researchers are holding their breath because when you see something like that, often that male will kill that infant that he hasn't sired in many species. But these males didn't do that. So that suggested mm. that there might be some possibility they'd sired that infant. So then we started to think, well, where is that male who is presumably off, you know, defending the boundaries of the territory? Might he be next door with that other female? And so that led to this <laughs> distinction between sexual monogamy, which is who you have sex with, and then social monogamy, um, which is who you live with, right? What so you can live with What one you're partner. presenting and what you're doing. Right. right. Right? Right. And so I wouldn't even call one actual monogamy mm -hmm. because they're just different, they're referring to different things. One is about your sexual behavior and one is about your, um, you know, your social arrangements mm -hmm. and who you live with. So a lot of white-handed givens, they live with one partner, um, but they also have sex with other partners. You know, when, when the opportunity. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of us aspire to sexual monogamy, but what we're able to do is social monogamy. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Yeah. And then, you know, you have these times when one or both partners might have what are called extra pair copulations, and they might be uh, condoned or they might be sanctioned. They might mm -hmm. be secret. They might be out in the open. Um, and they can be. Um, you know, kind of episodic, and or they can be, you know, more enduring. And so, I mean, if you look at most of the world, the expectation isn't even monogamy, right? Particularly mm -hmm. for males. I mean, right. You know, and what your research has shown is we shouldn't presume that monogamy is any more natural for females, among other well, things. Exactly, that you and I would really credit Sarah Hurdy for that in her book, *The Woman That Never Evolved*, to really show that, um, you know, the title refers to this idea that. Darwin and lots of other scientists had had painted a a picture of females as coy, as passive, as uninterested in sex. That you know the female would endeavor for a long time to escape, or would p pick the male that's least distasteful. You know, language like that, um, which really gave you the idea that females could hardly bear sex. It was right. And, wow, you know. did they ever meet a female langer? Right. Well, then if that's true. <laughs> If all of that is true, why have we, rem we removed the clitorises of 100 million women worldwide mm. to date, right? If right. females really don't like sex, you wouldn't yeah. have to remove why the clitorises. Why are we trying so yeah, hard you don't need to, to do contain and coerce right. them, right? Mm -hmm. So what it turns out is that all of that is kind of part of a, a social agenda to make women believe that it's unnatural to like sex because you want them to do what patriarchy wants them to do, which is to be passive and non-competitive and, you know, swooning on the couch and Coy. You know, lay back and think of England. And choosy. And, you know, Coy and choosy of. and disinterested. Yeah. I like the way Amy helps us understand that contemporary human females who are interested in polyamory or who are struggling with monogamy or maybe want an open relationship 
I love the way your work helps us normalize that and understand mm -hmm. that that too is part of the evolutionary script of human female sexuality. Like yeah. that's part of it. And it's like, let's just understand the information and realize that what we've been fed may not be accurate. And that's so right. let's have the information. And then like you said, you can choose what, what you agreements you have in your relationship. But let, let's be real. Let's be real. Okay, I want to talk about one thing that you haven't talked a lot about yet. You let me write about it a little bit. But speaking of rewriting the script about sexuality and male and female, um, presumed male dominance and presumed female subservience, you discovered something about bonobos and female dominance in bonobos that was really shocking to me when you told me about it and has shocked other people after I wrote about it, about female bonobos sexually coercing males. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I would say it's not, um, it's not a frequent aspect mm -hmm. of their behavior, but because females are so dominant, they pretty much get what they want. And so um, when other researchers had studied bonobos in the past, like Franz Duval had characterized these sex for food exchanges in bonobos where um, males would come and bring food to females and offer it to them in exchange for sex. And that really made a lot of sense, right, with, um, with our idea. <laughs> that sounds like a date. <laughs> right, right. Or prostitution, right? It's yeah. kind of the original prostitution. Familiar, ringing but a bell. <laughs> the idea was, you know, it really it aligned very well with our um, classical understanding of the limitations on males and females from a biological perspective. Males should be willing to give up food because the only thing that limits how many babies they have is access to fertile females. So food shouldn't be that important. Like they should be willing to give that up in exchange for sex. For females, they're going to have a set number of babies, you know, um, regardless of how many males they mate with, more or less. There's, there's some caveats to that, but, you know, the idea was that they didn't get the same benefits of mating with lots of partners that that um, males did. And so they should care about food because they have a limited number of babies. And so this exchange made sense, right? Um, so when I started studying bonobos, the females had matured and they were definitely dominant over the males. They didn't need males to give them food. They took the food that they wanted. Um, and so males would come to them and offer sex in exchange for food. So it showed that gender roles weren't set in stone, that it could be either sex that um, wants wants sex and either sex that's willing to make a, uh, to, to find a currency to make that exchange. So that was really um, interesting. And it, so that goes to your question um, about female sexual coercion, because when males get um, excited about anything, food um, or tension, they get erections. When they're stressed. Yeah, right? any kind of stress or, yeah. So um, females were kind of, you know, demanding, if males wanted food, they were demanding sex, so that worked out okay. But sometimes females wanted to have sex with males, and they were really nervous because females can hurt you. Um, so they have erections, and these females would just kind of follow the males around. You could see the male looking over his shoulder and crouching down and acting submissive and doing this grimacing. It's <laughs> like, please don't hurt me and stuff. And, you know, a couple times I saw a male just like lie down on his back and the female mounted him. So to me, that really looked coercive. Like the male didn't want to, he mm -hmm. tried to remove himself, but eventually it was just kind of like, go ahead. But it's not a typical, it's, um, not. it's not, it's not like a, yeah, it's not a super common um, 
pattern. But I did see uh, once in Stuttgart, and they brought in a new male, and these two adolescent females just relentlessly had sex with him. And he didn't look reluctant, but he looked worn out. So this went on for days, and he had like this. <laughs> I'm this, sure like, he looked worn out. <laughs> oh my God. He had this dried ejaculate, you know, all over his thighs. And he just, I mean, you could just tell. Um, but he wasn't. He was, it looked like he was a willing participant and all of that. And then there was one day when one of the females just turned on him and started attacking him instead. And the other adolescent female looked really surprised, like, oh, wait, what's happening now? What are we doing now? And the, the attacking female looked at her like, well, you know, are you in or are you out? And so she jumped in and started attacking him too. And that, you know, was hard to watch. And I mean, we have a lot of sympathy for these males, but one of the interesting things is how much more sympathy we have for males getting attacked than females getting attacked. So mm. um, when males are attacked, it's like, oh my God, we're going to have to make some intervention in the group. We have to give females timeouts when they're mm. behaving aggressively. We have to separate the males at night. If it's male chimps attacking female chimps, well, that's how chimps are. And that's part of their natural behavior. Wow. wow. So it's a really interesting difference. So that was just a, a rare instance where I was able to see females kind of turn on that switch of, yes, we like to have sex with you, but we're also going to remind you of your place in this group and who's in right. charge. I love the way you are challenging our most basic understandings about not just who animals are, but our evolutionary heritage mm -hmm. and who we might be. So thank you for that, Amy. Yes. Absolutely. It's so fascinating to hear. The connections yeah. are really deep and profound. And um, how can people who are listening and want to know more about your work, where can they find you on social media? or uh, At Dr. Amy Parrish on Twitter. And um, I, I tweet about bonobos and politics and women and... Um, other cute animals. So. All the good <laughs> things. <laughs> so find her there. Thank, Thank you, you so Amy. much. Thanks, this has Amy, been wonderful. Power to the sisterhood. Woo! Bonobo yeah. sisterhood. Yeah. We need Darwinian feminist t-shirts. We do. I'll that make them. Wonderful. Okay. I love that. That would be great. I want one. I feel like we could order. do a whole like bonobo t-shirt. Yeah. Kind of That's vibe. True. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, Dar yeah, we could do one t-shirt that's bonobo sisterhood and one that's Darwinian feminist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they need our help. The bonobos really need our help. Oh, maybe only... we should keep recording this. Let's just okay. do a quick thing because sure. then we have to record our introductions. But let's oh, sure. do a quick thing about Them if people want to know more or get involved. How they can. Amy Parrish works with the Bonobo Conservation Initiative. Can you tell people a little bit about how they can help the Bonobo Conservation Initiative? Sure. So Bonobo Conservation Initiative is an organization started by Sally Jewel Cox, who had worked for National Geographic and learned about bonobos probably 20 years ago and just said, I'm going to quit my job and save bonobos. And, you know, people <laughs> say things like that, but she actually went she and actually did it. She actually did it. Mm -hmm. And so she works in Democratic Republic of Congo, and she has been key to getting the Congolese government to commit to preserving 9 million acres of rainforest for the bonobos. And this is crucial because there are less than 15,000 bonobos left and people hunt wow. them and eat them. It's like cannibalism. They're, mm. you know, it's like eating another human. The bush it's meat really tree, bad. It's... And they can't bounce back. They have a four-year interbirth interval. And if you hunt them, then they can't recover from that in, the, in their population. So that's the only place they live. They need our help. BCI is doing amazing work. And you can find them at bonobo.org. And, um, you know, you can, you can try to go on an expedition. You can 
can um, you can donate. You can not get the latest, greatest cell phone every time a new model comes out or a new laptop because there's a mineral in that called coltan, which is mined out of the forests where bonobos and gorillas live. And um, the miners kill the bonobos and gorillas in the process. Oh, no. Their water gets poisoned. And you know it's some mineral that we need to conduct things in our electronics, but we need to lobby our electronic companies to come up with a another solution to that. We need to hang on to our own electronics as much as possible. And we need to donate to help the bonobos so that they can live on this earth as well and, and that we don't, you know, ruin things for everybody else. For our closest relatives. Mm-hmm. Give it up for your closest relatives. Yep. Check Absolutely. out Bonobo Conservation International and hold on to your iPhone for God's sake. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. Thank you. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes because this is what will support the podcast and it will spread the message for us. And if you leave your Instagram handle with your review, we'll pick one lucky reviewer to win a free copy of my book, Untrue, about female lust. And one other lucky reviewer will win a free coaching session with relationship coach Whitney Miller. Yes. Thanks, guys.